All right, welcome back, everybody. It's Wednesday. And uh, we got a good show for today. At the end of the show, I'm going to talk about a video clip that made me cry last night. And we'll see if it makes Molly cry today. I don't know if it's going to or not, but I have my tissue box here ready to go. But I think I, I might. <laughs> if I you've ever met me, too. you do not want to take the under on this bet. However, <laughs> However we'll see. News too. We'll see. There's news, too. Yeah, we're going to talk yeah. about the drama going on at Slack, get a mm. little deeper into what may have happened with the Slack Salesforce culture integration and dive mm. a little deeper into whether bundles are the king of a downturn or just unfair business practice. And we've been talking about uh, the malfeasance and fraud in crypto for a decade here on the show. And we speculated, hey, the speeding tickets that we saw Kim Kardashian, Floyd Mayweather get and some, you know, light action would eventually result in the perp walks in people actually doing prison time. Today, we're going to talk about the brother of a Coinbase manager getting 10 months in the big house for insider training front running the market. And I think this is my theory. This is the minnow, then they get the tuna, and then they get the big sharks and the whales. This is part of the process of flipping up to get uh, the bigger uh, fraudsters in crypto uh, and Sam Bankman Fried being uh, maybe perhaps the ultimate whale. So yeah. And big, then on, big on news. AI watch, we live in the future <laughs> as mm -hmm. AI starts to potentially become people's lawyers in the courtroom. And then we'll talk more generally about what that could mean for overhauling the legal profession and people's access to justice, because my God, are things moving fast in the AI world? I mean, if you ask ChatGPT to defend you in court, would that be better or worse in the next five years than having the average public defender? Or it's not being right. Exactly. Or, no, do or being job. denied access to that at all. Yeah. It's anyway, it's going to be. And then, of course, we wrap with that wholesome weeper of a moment. Uh, oh, well, we'll, we'll see. see. Yeah. We'll see. It's going to be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Age Tech Collaborative. Startups, your go to market team is waiting. Age Tech Collaborative's cutting edge accelerator program connects you with investors, test beds, like minded innovators, and industry expertise. They're taking Age Tech to the next level. Join them at agetechcollaborative.org slash twist. And NutriSense combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different food, exercise, stress, and sleep in real time. By pairing a CGM with their app and expert dietitian guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. Use code TWIST and get $30 off at NutriSense.io slash TWIST. All right, everybody. We, you know, I'm going to become that person this year. I've decided to double down on being that person. I have been saying that something is going on at Salesforce. And with every mm. passing week, more stuff keeps happening at Salesforce. In this case, there's mm. some drama at Slack. Oh, that probably stems from underperformance. Okay. But more and more uh, information is coming out about some various dysfunctions at Salesforce and its acquisition. Slack, of course, Salesforce bought Slack for almost $28 billion about two years ago. And now Slack is underperforming. Okay. Prob you know, there could be various reasons. It is likely not helped, let's say, mm -hmm. <laughs> exacerbated dramatically. By the fact that Microsoft started bundling what is effectively Slack's core offering for free into Office. So yes, that's Microsoft, Microsoft Teams. 
Teams, exactly. Microsoft Which, comes along, like, oh, we have yeah. Teams. We'll just make that free. And all of a sudden, mm. everybody's like, well, I'm not paying extra for Slack because our whole organization's already on Microsoft. And now we have that. Um, and then, of course, just a few weeks ago, Slack founder and CEO Stuart Butterfield announced that he would be stepping down and leaving Salesforce, which was almost certainly due to the fact that he had vested, that his mm. options had fully vested because it was exactly two years after Slack first agreed to be acquired. However, sometimes mm. you get rich and you keep your job that you love. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he definitely did not. And he uh, is being replaced by a longtime Salesforce executive, Lydia Ann Jones, not by someone that he handpicked. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Salesforce co-CEO Brett Taylor stepped down. A couple dozen Salesforce executives have left over the past year. Then last week, Slack held an all-hands meeting, which included Stuart and his new replacement, Lydia Ann mm. Jones. The meeting was focused on the clashing cultures ah. between Slack and Salesforce. Yes. And Stuart Butterfield responded to a question about that by admitting that he, quote, wasn't very successful integrating the two cultures. He said, the problem has been there's no incorporation of the Slack culture into the Salesforce culture. And unless mm. there is some element of that, then it's not integration in any sense. It's just the elimination. Okay. Yep. This is a common issue in the mm-hmm. m a world. We saw this acutely at Microsoft and Google before. Mm-hmm. And the best practice in Silicon Valley is if you buy something with a strong culture, you leave it be, let it have a separate building, let it have a separate P&L. And if there are things mm, that uh, you can take off their plate, like, say, infrastructure in YouTube's case, or yeah. the ad network in the YouTube case, Google, YouTube, uh, most people would consider that the greatest acquisition of all time. Why would people consider YouTube being acquired by Google as the greatest acquisition of all time? Well, they bought it for 1.6 billion. It's worth 250 to 500 billion. If it was a standalone business, it does tens of billions of dollars in revenue and it has grown massively. And when it was purchased, it was on debt store. They had the giant sword over their head. They were about to be decapitated by a lawsuit and, and also by their server bills. Google yeah. solved both those problems and uh, yeah, greatest acquisition ever. Uh, also up there, Instagram, right? Instagram continued to grow. Maybe a little heavy handed at the margins uh, with, you know, forcing stories into there, but they did stories better than even um, than Snapchat had done Snapchat did. So Mm -hmm. what's happening here is I think a weak corporate culture at Slack. And and, you know, like, or maybe because Stuart's not there, there's Mm -hmm. nobody to protect the Slack team. There's nobody to defend them. There's nobody to say, no, we don't do it that way here anymore. And then well, you Butterfield put, seems to be saying, to be clear, that he had not been doing that for the last two years. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, this is the problem. When founders check out, it's up to the acquiring company to then make these decisions. Uh, oh, uh, also Zappos, rest in peace, Tony Shea. Amazon did a great job of letting Zappos just run. Right. And not trying to force Amazon culture on Zappos culture, which Zappos culture was quite unique, um, especially when compared to Amazon's culture, quite unique. And I think it's so, interesting yeah. that Slack seems to have gotten the worst of both worlds here, which is that Salesforce didn't defend against the Microsoft move mm-hmm. by folding Slack into Salesforce products. Right. Because here you have this situation and there was an interesting anecdotal story from the, a Wall Street Journal article today. They interviewed the chief information officer at Carhartt, which, by the way, is like huge right now with the kids again. Love to see mm-hmm. it. 
Um, the CIO said that Slack did not make Salesforce any more useful to Carhartt because Carhartt was already using Microsoft and then Teams came along and Slack did nothing. And this is a company that had both. It seems to me that Salesforce did two things wrong here. One, they didn't see the competition coming Mm. and maybe they didn't pour the resources into Slack to improve its offering so that they wouldn't be so easily killed off by Microsoft. Yeah. And they didn't just absorb it and integrate it into Salesforce to make Salesforce that much more of a powerful product for customers who already use Salesforce. So they, they have like, so Slack literally got the worst of both acquisition stories. It was left vulnerable to competition and it was not integrated by the parent company in a way that would make its core product stronger. Yeah. There's a uh, quote, I think it was culture, each strategy for breakfast. Um, and you can have the best strategy in the world hey, here's how we're going to compete with Microsoft, etc. But if you don't have the right culture at the company to execute on that, uh, you could have problems. And here there's a culture problem and a strategy problem. You put the two together. What do you get? Uh, you get declining quarterly growth. They're growing at like six and a half, seven percent now. They were growing at 10%. You get that. That could all be explained by the Microsoft headwind, right? Mm-hmm. It could just be anybody who's got the office suite just says, hey, we have this. Um, we don't need to put Slack in. We don't need to have a separate system. And then the other strategy, okay, we incorporate this into Salesforce. I'm, I, I'm a Slack user. I don't want to log into Salesforce to go to Slack. I like Slack as it's like beautiful little independent thing for me. You know, um, right. I, I like the best of breed software, just like I like right. Notion as my best of breed document management and Coda. I like um, Zoom, you know, as my best of breed. Not everybody wants a suite of products. Some people like, you know, totally. best of breed. And, and, and that's one of the philosophical things that's going on in corporate America right now. And uh, you need to really be best of breed. And so maybe Slack, I, I, using the Slack product, I have to say, I love huddles. I think that product's gotten really good. Yeah. Um, they're like supposedly going to have some documents involved. It, but I mean, don't have documents supposedly. Yet. This is where I think this is where I think this was a miss, right? Salesforce may have and we don't know but yeah. this this is the kind of thing that happens when you are acquired and you're not core mm. they may have been starved of the resources that they needed to build in those things like yeah. documents and like you know i mean huddles came kind of late to the game so they were prevented mm. so again they were prevented from becoming best in breed mm. and now it th- that's happening at a time when like best in breed is great but mm. if all anybody can afford is bundles like think about it if you could only pay for zoom or slack Right. Like one of those could get killed because huddles now have video, but Zoom, you could just do audio, which is kind of like a huddle. Like if Zoom had chat, like if one of these, either Slack or Zoom could pretty easily kill the other with a new feature set. I feel like Slack's closer to killing Zoom. So will Salesforce let them, right? Because Zoom can be more nimble in theory. Zoom added channels. I Mm -hmm. went into it like twice. I added a couple of people and I was like, this is poorly designed. Yeah. The design is ugly and it's not intuitive. And Slack has gorgeous UX and design. And so um, I feel like Slack, if I had to pick one, I'd pick Slack with huddles, then uh, Zoom with channels. Right. And the then now imagine that yeah. your company pays for Microsoft. Yeah, that is a no brainer. You're not yeah. going to have Zoom or Slack. No, of course Saturation, not. Saturation, yeah. baby. Like bundles in a downturn, bundles get hot again. 
Best of breed does not matter. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's time for a special interview with an old friend of mine, Rick Robinson. He is the GM of Age Tech Collaborative, which is brought to you by our friends at AARP, which I think, Rick, correct me if I'm not, at 52 as of last week. Am I able to be in AARP now? You are You are welcome to join. Oh, man. You and I got old. Yes. What happened? <laughs> this is amazing. You guys are really excited uh, about engaging the startup community in building technology for folks who are getting up there in age. Yeah, it's really exciting for us developing the Age Tech Collaborative to try to put a focus on what we call Age Tech. Mm. And you might be wondering, like, what is Age Tech? Well... Yeah. It's, uh, it's the intersection of longevity and technology, really. These are health tech companies. These are fintech companies. These are wellness companies. Essentially, it's going to be almost every company because the market, 50 plus, is becoming so enormous that they can't be ignored. Mm. And then you've got a lot of people who are supporting that market who can yeah. be any age. It's kind of a white space because not a lot of product developers and marketers and startups and investors have put a lot of focus on this, but it's huge and it's growing. In fact, it's around eight and a half trillion dollars in terms of eco economic value in the US right now. All right, thanks, Rick. When you're selling into the 50 plus market, having a relationship with AARP gives you a bunch of credibility, of course. In the meantime, you can go learn more about the Age Tech Collaborative at agetechcollaborative.org slash twist. And join us later in the program and you hear more about the Age Tech Collaborative and how they help innovative startups succeed. I think this is where startups are unique in the world. Mm -hmm. Startups are really looking for cutting edge technology they're small teams under a 1000 people under 500 people. And you're like, if I can use my SaaS software, if Coda or Notion or Zoom or Slack, give me or Airtable, whatever it is, gives me that 10 20% advantage over a competitor who's using a Microsoft bundle. Yeah, maybe they say, you know, well, the CIO, the CTO of the company at Carhartt or whoever made this top down decision. But you know, the scrappy companies might want that little added functionality that you, you can only do in some of those products and they want sure. the product velocity. So that's really what makes a nice competitive landscape. Here's David Sachs explaining. And he's a free market, you know, uh, monster like the rest of us. He has concerns about the bundling. And he thinks, hey, maybe this is a place Lena Khan uh, could spend some time here's uh, 65 seconds from Molly's bestie sex. I do think that Microsoft is a little bit uh, unique uh, in its ability to bundle. So what? So Tramath is right about the power of the bundling. Uh, what they do is, I think it's called the E5 bundle. They have all these products that virtually all enterprises use, from Office to you know Active Directory to you know. There's like a whole long list of them. And so what they've done is they've created one price for all of those products that they sell as a bundle under a wall-to-wall -wall enterprise license. And what they do is when they see a new competitor come along, whether it's Slack or Zoom or uh, or Okta, is they'll basically just clone it, create a worse version of that product and throw it into the bundle. And so now every single enterprise is getting the Slack clone or the Zoom clone or whatever for free. And that has a huge material impact on, you know, it pulls the rug out from under those startups. So now that's not to say that Microsoft's product is anywhere near as good as those, those competitors. But, you know, now all of a sudden the, the Microsoft product is on a marginal basis free. Yeah, there it so, is. I mean, he explained you know, it perfectly. I, I always knew that Sachs and I were destined to become best friends. Yeah. Because here's a piece I wrote in November 2021 for the Atlantic. Oh, okay. Uh huh. That we have ready, I believe, to pull up here. Yeah. 
There we go. Oh. Scroll up to the top. How has Microsoft escaped the mm. scrutiny of reinvigorated antitrust regulators? There it is. And the piece goes on to note that Microsoft is still doing the thing mm. that it got taken down for by the Justice Department in the 90s. And if you do a find here for bundling, mm. you'll find it. Yeah. Because that is what they're... Oh, look, it is. They, they were yeah. sued for illegally bundling and they still are. And I believe I mentioned Slack in this piece mm. uh, as quite specifically an example of how yeah. Microsoft is still doing all of the things, all of the things that they've been doing all along. But I, I wonder, it was a big part of it also was their OEM relationships. Those original equipment manufacturers, they kind of totally. put a gun to their head and said, if you take Windows, you got to put this on the desktop, this being uh, Internet Explorer, right? Exactly. So I think that they were barred from doing that. But bundling, no. And then right. I, I think about it from a consumer basis. If something becomes a standard, there should be competition. So this people is a very like delicate concept here. The, the thing that people really hated back in the Bill Gates days was the concept of vaporware. Not only, you know, would they copy something, Bill Gates would tell the sales team, tell everybody we have a Lotus Notes competitor coming out in six weeks or six months or whatever it was, allegedly. Um, but I, I don't think this was alleged because I experienced it. The Microsoft folks would be like, hey, yeah, we got a Lotus 123 competitor. You probably don't want to install Lotus. And then this concept, this meme, right? This is where language is so important. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever got fired for picking IBM. Nobody ever got fired for picking Microsoft. Yeah. So in the IT business, which I was part of in the 90s, these two things uh, became, you know, uh, best practices. Nobody got fired yeah. for picking Microsoft. So and they in still this don't. case, they still yeah. don't. I mean, I don't well, think Microsoft is, I, I don't think Microsoft is doing anything wrong here, necessarily, mm -hmm. right? Like, it may be somewhat anti-competitive, but not illegally monopolistic. Those are, those are two distinct yeah. things. And I think what I think is so interesting about the Salesforce Slack story is that I think Salesforce screwed it up specifically. How so? I think this is a Salesforce issue. One, Got it. they bought Slack mm -hmm. for a lot of money for $28 billion yep. based, I think, on kind of a, a bubble perception, mm -hmm. right? Like Slack is awesome because a lot of startups use it and it's hot in Silicon Valley, like Notion, like this and that forgetting that out in the rest of the and and they left slack vulnerable to competition so they forgot that out in the rest of the world nobody is getting fired for using microsoft and didn't necessarily invest in making slack the kind of thing that could get huge at the enterprise level and then two or b like i said earlier failed to integrate it into their core product to shore up salesforce itself and make salesforce that much more indispensable here's the thing I blame Benioff. Hot take. There it is. Uh, you know, they paid, if you look at the current run rate, $400 million a quarter for Slack, uh, I think they paid like 17 times what they're currently making, right? $28 billion divided by $1.6 I think you get to like almost 20. It's like 17 and a mm -hmm. half or so. So it's not the worst purchase in the world if it keeps growing. Uh, they can grow into it. It won't be a terrible acquisition. So I wouldn't say like they caught the knife. This thing is collapsing. It's still growing. It's still an important piece of software. But this should be like alarm bells are going off at Salesforce that their culture is inefficient or doesn't. They don't have an innovative enough culture here because in a competitive vertical like this, when you have people bundling, you got to up your game. And this is where like founders or, you know, 
very rarely uh, a non-founder can operate a founder's vision better than the founder. Yep. Two examples come to mind. Susan Wojcicki and Salar with YouTube. I think they even took Chad Hurley's vision and even took it to another level because they had globalized Google already. And, and Chad had it, right? It's no dick to Chad. He had this incredible vision. But because Susan and Salar had been part of Google going to 100 countries, they knew the potential there. They had the playbook, as it were. Yep. And then the, you know, the other one is obviously Tim Cook being able to take all the innovations that were backed up from Steve Jobs, including the iPhone and the iPad, just two extraordinary innovations, and milk them right. for every penny they can make and just Logistics keep- Logistics the hell out of it. I mean, he, he did supply chain the heck out of it. And he did look at that supply chain and say, hey, well, what if we had our own chips, right? And so there were some strategic decisions that I think Tim Cook was really able to do that maybe, you know, who knows if Steve Jobs would have, I mean, Steve Jobs did hire him and did empower him, but maybe right. Apple's performance right now is even better on a financial basis because Tim Cook is still cutthroat about that. And I just want to say, mm -hmm. I had a premonition. Apple is doing so amazing. I think their stock's at like a 52-week low or something crazy like that. Can we put up the Apple chart for a second here? And I've been watching the stock market, uh, you know, bounce along the bottom. Right. And since I did my J trading, I'm still down mm -hmm. a bit on J trading. You can pull up the J trading page if you want to. But you start looking at that one year chart for Apple. My Lord. Um, you know, and then you look at the five year. Um, you know, they've been flat with the revenues going crazy. And so this company, man, uh, is mm -hmm. trading at a very reasonable PE here, uh, 21. Oh, yeah. And um, I get the sense that they're going to knock the ball out of the park with <clears throat> the headset. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with headsets is use case and fit and finish, you know, how they feel. Yeah. Oh my God, those two things, we've talked about this ad nauseum. And so I haven't J traded in months because I've been watching the world come apart. I thought, hey, this would be a good time to take a pause and see where this ends up. I kind of feel like, again, I thought it was a double dip recession. Here we are in the double dip. Feels like things are starting to turn over. I feel like it's going to be a rough, you know, two or three more quarters of chop, maybe four even. S sticking with my same prediction, six, six to eight quarters of slog and a double dip recession. I may Jay have to J-trade into Apple. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> ah, no. Apparently you're doing from it. That. But my J-trading's not that bad. Uh, if you go to J-trading, I think I'm off. Like compared to, let's see, if I had bought an index, just to be intellectually honest here, I'd be down mm -hmm. 2.39 and my current portfolio is down 9.7%. Now I'm, I'm investing in tech. I believe tech's at a bottom. And so I'm trailing the market by seven points. I'm okay with it. Um, and of course, the things that I'm up on are the things that I bought last. So, you know, I think it's a, 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 an issue of timing, but uh, mm -hmm. the meta Netflix, Adobe, Shopify trades have been great. My Amazon trades. Uh, were a little rough. Also, you saw the Stitch Fix news this week, right? Big She's news at back. Stitch Fix. Cat's yeah. coming back. Is she coming back permanently or is it a temporary thing? And no. They made it sound like it's a temporary thing, which I think is a little odd. But I can yeah. tell you from my sources on mm -hmm. the inside or very recently on the inside mm -hmm. that people are stoked. Like, Return of the queen. Is, I mean, she's so dynamic. Like, she mm -hmm. just is one of those people that you want to believe in 
and people are pretty thrilled. In case you missed this news, by the way, uh, current Stitch Fix CEO Elizabeth Spalding is leaving after a year and a half on the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it was a that was a turn a failed. I mean, she was trying to execute a turnaround in a really tough time. Didn't work out. Katrina Lake is coming back in what authority, is being termed an interim role right now. So I'm just saying that trade could turn around. That trade could turn, turn around, around pretty quick. Uh, yeah. I feel like Disney and uh, Amazon are going to be great companies going forward. Disney's made a little rebound too. Mm-hmm. So I- I'm still bullish on all these trades. I'm, I was looking at the trades and I was like, who would I sell in this group? Who do I think? Stitch Fix, Disney, Amazon, Warner Brothers, Taiwan Semiconductor, Shopify, Disney, Robinhood, Uber, Apple, Adobe, Netflix, Facebook. Who, which one of these don't I want to own? And I was like, I don't still love all these names and we'll be going into earnings season. So it'd be good to look at when I made these trades and, and what's changed since, you know, that point in time. Yeah. Hey, everybody. It's time for a special interview with an old friend of mine, Rick Robinson. He is the GM of Age Tech Collaborative which is brought to you by our friends at AARP. So how does the collaborative work? How do you help companies and investors kind of access these companies and these markets? So essentially what we do is we look for companies, we incubate them, we invest in them, and then we bring them into this new environment we call the HTech Collaborative Community. So yes, we have pitch competitions that we run throughout the year themed and some of them are open mic style Mm. and it's a way for us to source and find great early stage companies usually pre-series a Mm. we invite some of them into our accelerator program which is extremely high touch eight weeks four times a year where we bring in aging experts we help get them best prepared to deliver their product or service to the market and as i mentioned we often invest in these companies and then they graduate into the HTech Collaborative community, which is an online platform that makes up an ecosystem that we're developing that includes, of course, the startups, investors, testbed organizations, enterprises, and business services, all in this one online environment Hmm. where they can support and draw from one another. Great. So there's an online community people can go visit. They can go visit that at agetechcollaborative.org slash twist, agetechcollaborative.org slash twist. And so if you want to build in that market, if you want to sell into that market, if you want to invest in that market, this is a great way for you to partner with AARP, correct? Absolutely. Yep. I do think efficiency in companies is becoming a major issue. I saw in one of my group chats, you know, John Carmack was leaving um, Meta. We saw Mm -hmm. that in December and he kind of lit some things on fire on the way out. But then Boz, uh, who's the CTO, he had some choice words about how inefficient things are at Meta. Now Meta has been turning it around um, in terms of layoffs and maybe cutting spending, but I think it's yeah. worth looking at this as a in relation to the Salesforce story, which is corporate bloat and the lack of nimbleness that you expect at IBM or Microsoft, you know, very large companies, very huge international companies. It's kind of getting embedded into what were previously nimble companies, the Googles, the Salesforce, and the Facebooks now feel like they're having bloat too many people involved in decisions. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Molly. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I years ago, I was like, I want to write a book called Scale about how scale mm-hmm. actually ruins everything, right? Like yeah. there you just, I mean, growth, unchecked growth is cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it kills you. 
And you yep. have these companies that have had just such growth and you have a decline. We've talked about this a whole bunch, a decline in managing as a mm. skill set. Yeah. And and like a respect for what managing even means. And then no training. And, you know, mm. and even now it's, it's so interesting. Like that's the class that everybody's like, oh, you just got to get rid of managing. And it's like, okay, well, you can do that if you're only ever going to be 30 people or maybe 20. But at some point, actually, you really do have to care about managing because then if you don't, then what happens is you get Andrew Bosworth writing about your 18,000 person division. He's talking about Reality Labs and saying every week I see, he said, we've solved too many problems by adding headcounts. This is according to an internal memo obtained by The Verge. Um, but adding headcount also adds overhead and overhead makes everything slower. Every week I see documents with 100 plus editors. He wrote to the roughly 18,000 people in Reality Labs, a meeting with 50 plus people that took a month to schedule. Sometimes there is even a pre-meeting with its own document. I believe yep. the current situation is untenable, he wrote. And that's why Carmack apparently left too. It was just like, we can't get anything done. Mm. And he so said this is things the have been really positive a that A players can get very frustrated with bloat. And when I was at AOL, you know, coming in as an entrepreneur, an A player, uh, in my estimation, to a company that was filled with, uh, I'm not going to say not A players, I'll just say lifers, you know, they had been at AOL for over 10 years. Yeah. They had gotten very comfortable. They had very, the, the pay packages, the scale of going from a director to a vice president to a senior vice president. to vice It was juicy. And I could see somebody, you know, with a family and kids and, uh, you know, maybe didn't want to take risk or, you know, wasn't as risk inclined at that point in their life. You know, somebody who's 40 years old with three kids in private school, you're like, huh? Yeah. And a mortgage, you're like, Ooh, if I get to that next rung and it kicks in this, it kicks in that. It was pretty great. You know, they were maxing out pension not pensions, maxing out 401k, so all that stuff. And I remember one time I came into Jim Bankoff's office who now runs Vox. Um, and he, you know, it was like one of my first days and I just dropped by his office to say hi, I happened to be in the building. And uh, he's, you know, this little portico window kind of situation. I just kind of waved at him. He waved me, he waves me and I come in. He's on mute. And he starts talking to me. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your call. He's like, guy, it's a standing call. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, it's a standing call. You know, like, we just have this call every week, I can talk to you. Whatever. So he's talking to me mm -hmm. while he's on a conference call. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's multitasking, he just you know, he turns the volume down. And uh, I realized that that's what everybody was doing. They were filling their calendars. So time boxing, but with meetings. And right. we just saw Shopify last week. Toby said, Hey, no more meetings, right? So I have a theory about management. I don't think there's like one management style that necessarily works. I think management is a process. And that the process of exploring different management techniques and even changing them is and having them be variable and dynamic leads to increased performance in other words i don't think you lock into one management philosophy and then that's the winner i think mm. you could try different management styles you can try different things it makes it exciting for a players to try different things so as but one example uh amazon has the leader right i forgot what they call it in the the book working backwards but there's like there has to be a person in charge, right, of every project. Mm -hmm. Some people like pods, where you have like three or four projects going on, and a group of five or six people will manage one project. Now, what is the benefit of each? 
the benefit of one person in charge is obvious like single person responsible no matter what happens you can fire blame that person reward that person <clears throat> and they got the heat on them right the single threaded leader you know you know bezos knows hey if i'm gonna go choose somebody out because you know the kindle feature you know that i used last night sucks he can go find that person the directory and just go or conversely if somebody crushes it at audible he can go find that person and give them a raise or say mm -hmm. give it more resources hey do more of that okay that's single threaded leader then it turns out when you have a pod we have integration so then the other big complaint inside companies molly is hey slack and salesforce aren't integrated and you know they don't talk to each other it's two different cultures or youtube is distinct or instagram doesn't work with facebook right so how do you manage those kind of uh issues mm -hmm. i literally just did this this morning for the first time here at launch we have programs founder university the launch accelerator we have remote demo day angel mm -hmm. university uh and then we have a new project uh we're doing that we'll talk about yet but it's an, a new accelerator and a really exciting vertical uh that we're launching uh that'll be like a fun experiment so it's five of them and i had one person in charge of every single one and then i said you know what be interesting these things are overlapping so much i'm gonna have jackie run a call every morning a stand-up for the programs team and then let's see if we can integrate them more and we had the first call today it was like oh you know what just one little discovery um customer interviews and customer research Mm -hmm. is something that our founders keep asking about because what's customer research that's when you talk to your customer <laughs> you do some analysis of what their needs are and it turns out like some of our companies do that really well and some of our companies whether they're in the founder university accelerator or even their 10 million dollar companies don't have that function at all so i was like can we find out in our portfolio of 350 companies or 300 historically 350 maybe 200 or so active who's great at this get those four people together create an afternoon where the four of them talk invite all of the founder university all of the accelerator all the portfolio companies to that then can we make a couple of blog posts and founder university podcasts out of it and then every single program we should have that integrated and we just did the same thing with accounting because so many people are not good at accounting and we see that yeah. kill companies and so we yeah. said okay let's have accounting uh for founder university planning for accelerator and let's do some accounting in the founder university podcast so it it's just another way of saying management is about changing it up in my mind keeping it fresh thinking about how we could all be better sometimes time boxing is a good thing sometimes outcome management is a good thing right just what's the outcome we're looking for mm -hmm. but also like sometimes it's good to everybody look at their calendar and say hey how are you spending your time right now that doesn't mean you want to do that f forever do i want to look at everybody's time boxing forever and their calendar forever no but I might want to do it for a couple of months or two quarters and get everybody really charged up about efficiency. And then maybe that goes down and then maybe we talk about outputs, right? So I, anyway, I, it's just a philosophy I'm playing with, which is variable and changing up management strategies on some cadence, right? To keep it fresh and exciting and engaging. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But what I think, yes, not even but. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I think companies need managers. Like, I think ma management layers mm. carefully sprinkle, like, as these companies grow, yeah, right? This is a problem of scale without management or maybe too much management. Like, they might have overhired in the yep. manager roles, yeah, but that doesn't mean now, now they're going to overcorrect. And so then it's just going to be like, if you, oh, you've got everybody who's equal. And it's like, mm. oh, okay, cool. No one's in charge. Everyone's shoved in the doorway all at the same time and yeah. no one's directing traffic. 
Like literally someone's job at a company over a certain size. Let's say you get to 100 people. Mm. You'd have traffic directors and you need to respect that freaking job. And those people don't want to self-promote and they don't want to be out here being the power loss star of everything. But they're the only people who make it run. Yeah. And and this is the challenge. And the, I mean, that actually kind of speaks to my very, vari- my variability. I'm going to call it that. But we're changing yeah. it up. So just a little change. Like you have person who has, they have yeah. to have the bandwidth to be aware that now we need to change. Like, oh, we've been yep. doing calendar for three months, which means people are probably stuck doing old jobs. It is my job yeah. to make sure that we come in and we like burp, 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 shake it up and make sure we look at outcomes. Like, yeah. And, and yeah. that was like really another part of my, I always like talking about my day, like in, on my, I had two pod call. I had two of these like stand up meetings this morning sales and then uh, the the programs team. And with the programs team, I was also like, let me talk about the output we're looking for here. Because I'm on the calls with LPs raising launch run four. They get most excited when we find a company early, that's a 100x return. In fact, I think that's how people select what venture funds they are in. They're right. like, what did you find really early that you owned a meaningful percentage of? And that you were able to liquidate to investors. It's pretty straightforward. So I said, you know, when I'm in my meetings, when I when we talk about these five companies, I see LPs light up. Oh, mm-hmm. wow, that's so exciting. You know, com.com, they were on the podcast, then you invested, oh, and you syndicated it. Oh, oh, this company, you found them, and then you joined the board, and you made these six investments in them. Oh, and you sold some in secondary. And I said, that's actually what these programs are here for, for us to identify a company that can be 50 to 100x our original investment. So let's incorporate that into our lens. And so it's like, I think really good for a manager. But then if this if this meeting went for three hours, and I had the whole company on it, which is what we used to do, right? We did a, We were doing a whole company right. meeting every Wednesday. Totally. And, and then I was like, minutes. wait a second, this is, yeah. I, I could just see it looking at the zoom of 22 people. I'm like, these eight people are doing email. And these 14 people are listening because this has nothing to do with their job. Anyway, speaking of doing your job. Look at you evolving. It's all about I, I, because I'm your always, company is growing. Like, I, don't, I think people don't yeah. realize that, like, you are literally having to evolve in a management way because your company has gone from you, in this case, this company. Like, it's not that you well, haven't actually, been managing this whole time. Me plus 10, me plus 20. Yeah, exactly. It's just gross. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, now it's a program team, right? Like, it's, yeah, yeah it's not just it. one, it's not just the accelerator. When COVID hit, I was struggling with my weight. So I tried a continuous glucose monitor, CGM, you probably heard of them. And this product is called NutriSense. And it helped me understand why I was gaining weight. And it helped me get my weight under control because I understood when my glucose was spiking. I uh, sometimes stress eat cereal with whole milk would spike my glucose like you wouldn't believe. And then I'd have a small portion of full fat ice cream, like a Haagen-Dazs. And I was like, wait a second, I am having my glucose spike much lower. I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought the the Haagen-Dazs was worse than a bowl of cereal. If you don't have the data, you can't manage it. With the data, you can manage it and you will be able to learn how your body responds to these different foods. Here's how it works. The CGM, that continuous glucose monitor, it's a small device you put on your body and it tracks glucose in real time. The application, it's painless. Then you scan your CGM, right? You look at it, you visualize the data, you start logging your meals, you take pictures, etc. And you're going to get expert guidance from a dietitian based on your goals. And that's how I learned about the sugar versus ice cream example I gave. Understanding this data will make it much easier to identify what you're doing well and where there's room for improvement. Let NutriSense help you reach your full health potential. It was a big part of my journey. Visit NutriSense.io 
slash twist and use the code twist to save $30 and get one month of free dietitian support n-u-t-r-i-s-e-n-s-e dot i-o slash twist for $30 off and one month of free dietitian support speaking of doing your job <laughs> you know, we talked about coinbase cutting 20 percent yesterday during a job Ooh, yeah but remember i said perp walks would happen mm-hmm. and people are going to go to jail because we saw the speeding tickets typically how enforcement works is you get investigations you get document requests you get speeding tickets settlements but then at some point some people go to jail in the crypto world we are now on that precipice of people doing jail time <laughs> it took yeah. six seven years of mushugana and malfeasance and outright crimes but the brother of a former coinbase uh product manager has been sentenced to 10 months in prison this is prison molly this mm-hmm. is where you go and they don't let you leave <laughs> because you broke the law yeah. this is not a speeding ticket this is some crypto bro who was front running listings on coinbase is now going to stare up at the ceiling in his prison cell and cry for his mama for a week and say what life choices did i make that i tried to make a couple of shekels off of a ethereum trade or a, a xrp trade and now i'm in the i'm in the big house as a crypto trader yeah wondering if i should close my eyes and go to sleep yo man it, this is real talk i've been watching screlly videos martin screlly's talking about his prison time oh really <laughs> well you know like screlly and i had a you little flare up at one point <laughs> that he went to jail <laughs> yeah and i watched it he does like a live stream so i watched one of screlly's live stream sh- streams and now screlly's go to martin screlly's go to link bait is talking about prison and talking about how he was running prison with his thugs and his crew and he's got like all the names of his crew and he was explaining like how he would punk you know uh, uh, sam bankman free when he came to jail and how he would take his commissary and you know they would dress him down and, and y- yada yada so anyway i just can't wait for someone to come out of the same jail and be like no <laughs> I beat him. I put him in the locker every single day. Anyway. Anyway. U.S. prosecutors are calling this the first insider trading case involving cryptocurrency. I think we'd probably edit that and say that has been prosecuted. (laughs) (laughs) Nikhil Wahi uh, used anonymous Ethereum wallets to take advantage of tips from his brother, who was Mm -hmm. the former Coinbase product manager, letting him buy those cryptocurrencies before Coinbase announced that they were going to be listed. Mm-hmm. With that, he made uh, almost $900,000 trading 40 different crypto tokens following these mm-hmm. tips from his brother. He was arrested in July. Mm-hmm. He and his brother, I think, and pleaded. The brother is pleading not guilty, the former product oh. manager. A friend of theirs was also charged. You remember, it was like these three yeah. guys, um, but was not in custody and appears to be at large still. While he pleaded guilty back in December to account of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and uh, had to forfeit $892,500 and was given two years probation along mm-hmm. with the prison sentence. He's also subject to deportation in India after he serves his sentence. Prosecutors had asked for him to get as much as 16 months in prison. And according to Bloomberg, the defense lawyer called her client who is 26 
a, quote, incredibly decent young man who did the wrong thing for a misguided reason. Here's a crazy thing. I've been at many, I, I was involved in many discussions at events, you know, when I would be at an event and crypto people were talking about XRP is going to be listed on. I know. Coinbase. I'm kind of mad about this. Buy like, honestly, yes. I'm having a little bit of like bleeding heart about this kid. Are you? Yeah. I because mean, I think he- everybody was doing this. And I think the idea that he, you know, like, I just think like everybody was pretending these weren't securities. Like, this is the exact same kind of thing as the 2008 financial fraud or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. these poor kids, these two guys are going to go down and get deported. And $900,000, you know, they say they were sending it back to their parents in India. That's a lot of money in India. Like, I'm just like, they're going to go down mm. and like SBF's going to walk and I'm over it. I'm just over oh, the no. system. You, being you like also this. thought Theranos was going to walk too, by the way. You were, you thought that they might That's get true, off. That's I did they think got, that. I did think that. I might yeah. be, I hope I'm dead wrong about SBF. I really do. But I also think that there are like so many institutional investors who were doing all this same crap. Like, I just feel like the first person you see go down like this is yeah. always just like, that's the tiny, that's a minnow. That's the tiniest little minnow that ever minnow. I mean, what if a venture firm right. was, what if there was a venture capital firm? What if? That was all in on crypto. And they were also hearing what was going to be listed on Coinbase. Or they were buying tokens and doing pre-sales and setting stuff up in Panama. Like, I think I, I said this before that I think we're going to see a bunch of dominoes drop just like on January 6th. You know, they, they, uh, I listened to Preet Bharara. He, that, that's my guy. And I listened to stay tuned with Preet and then Cafe Insider. It's a hundred bucks a year for Cafe Insider. Go to cafe.com. It's really great to listen to because he explains how the Southern District of New York, mm-hmm. where he worked, pursued cases. You start at the bottom. Flip, 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 flip. Settle, 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 settle. Evidence, 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 evidence. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, and there's the whale. Mm-hmm. This is the minnow. You are correct, Molly. This is the minnow. Then they take the minnow, they put it on the hook, they throw it back out. Now they get a nice tuna. Then they take the tuna, they slice it up, they put it back out there, start flapping around, and then the shark grabs it. And then they got the shark on the hook. These are the minnows. Next come the, the mid-tier you know, the 10, 20, $15 million, and then comes the billion dollar whale. And the billion dollar whale is Sam Bankman Freed. I mean, I that hope kid so. is going to be skewered. I hope so. But even he is like his own. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We don't have a good track record of white collar accountability in this country. I don't know. Did you read that? Read that Jesse Eisinger? Is that his name? The, the chicken ish club? No, I don't know what that is. Oh, it's fascinating. Oh, my God. Uh, you got to read it. It's basically about how American prosecutors have huh. just stopped pursuing white collar accountability because it's like too mm. difficult and politically fraught. And and then it's just become this lay. And so what happens is most of the time we go for minnows or even mm. like I, I would argue that Sam Bankman Freed is a tuna, but that there are unnamed whales behind him it who could be. probably won't ever, you know, have even a sweat. I, drop. You know, this um, whistleblower stuff uh, that the, I believe at the SEC uh, does this whistleblower uh and i have tracked this because i follow like uh, why the justice department fails to prosecute executives interesting this is such a good book i'm going to send it to you i I will get i'll just send me the link or you could buy it on the internet yes totally yeah um there have been so many of these awards uh to the sec 
uh, if you go to sec.gov slash whistleblower, it's fascinating because they don't tell you who the whistleblower was, but they are, if you whistleblow, you get a percentage of whatever is recouped. So there is an absurd, if you want to be a millionaire, this is a message to journalists. If you're a journalist and you want to get paid, commensurate with (laughs) the fraud you uncover, don't be a journalist. (laughs) Go work as a a receptionist, (laughs) as an accountant, as, you know, a mid-tier manager (sighs) at some criminal enterprise uh of a of a finance company or a corporate company document everything and then take it to the sec sec awards went more than 37 million dollars to a whistleblower and they love to put these press releases out and this just happened in december 19 um and the whistleblower was the initial source of the company's internal investigation as well as the source of the investigation of sec and other agencies while the company reported alleged conduct to the sec and other agency the whistleblower receives credit for the investigation being initiated initiated because the whistleblower provided the same information to the sec within 120 days of providing it internally so mm. they are literally explaining they're giving a roadmap at the sec of how to flip if you're involved in a crypto enterprise right now mm-hmm. that is doing illegal stuff go to sec.gov whistleblower and get paid just round yeah. up i mean listen i don't want to give you advice you're not making money on your crypto equity so your crypto equity is going to zero so you, i mean literally bag. if you worked at i don't give, I want to give advice but let's say mm-hmm. you worked at a venture firm uh or you were an lp in a venture fund and you knew there was stuff going on and you lost your money or you're not going to make any money on your carry like i could see some associate at a venture firm that was involved in crypto who knows where the bodies are buried and all they're going to do is just download the entire document dump and hand it to the sec and say hey this is the fraud i saw this is what i saw i was at an i was at a firm they liquidated their tokens you know da, 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 and you know here's my involvement i made 15 grand because i also bought the token i realize now i made a mistake they're going to give you a slap on the wrist and they're probably going to give you 10 million bucks and i think it's like a good it's a just thing to do because you feel and this book was written and a lot of people feel like white collar criminals are held to a different standard and you know what that's probably true but it doesn't need to be true um i think it's you know in a down market like this when a lot of people lose their money and i've been saying this for five years now molly when people start losing money and grandma or the retiree or your cousin who's not in the biz lost their money on a crypto grift and they go to their local um um da district mm-hmm. attorney district mm-hmm. attorney's like oh what a wonderful case i, I mm-hmm. was just pursuing you know i don't know some you know bullshit card game or some you know casino running out of the back of a bagel shop this is much more interesting this is a bigger pelt this will get me more social cred if i go after this it'd be more interesting uh, yeah. the first perp walk of many i predict and these are the minnows get ready for the big tuna and then get ready for the sharks and the whales it's yeah. coming everybody um let's we have been talking a lot about ai obviously it is it is one of the mm-hmm. bubble themes it's i mean one of the big themes of 2023 and also it's just Could starting to heat up and get kind of mm-hmm. this is kind of dishy so a couple mm-hmm. things are happening here um do not pay 
which is a site that basically was founded in 2015 as a chatbot to that's let Josh people, Browder, which Josh is Browder. Bill, yeah, that's Bill Browder who wrote Red Notice's son. Right. He was on episode 1007. He's like a consumer advocate. Yes, exactly. And so uh, Do Not Pay was this chatbot that would let people mm -hmm. kind of like get out of parking tickets, like navigate sure. these tricky bureaucratic things. So then uh, Do Not Pay has integrated some, I think, chat GPT type technology. Okay. Pivoted in 2020 with a real focus on AI. Uh -huh. And now apparently mm. a defendant in an actual court case who's fighting a parking ticket wow. unbeknownst to the judge will be trying to use this AI uh, lawyer okay. in a U.S. courtroom. So in real time, allegedly, okay. <laughs> or supposedly, this AI will listen to the proceedings, analyze what is being said, and instruct the defendant on what to repeat. Joshua, Prou Joshua Browder would not provide any other details uh, to Gizmodo, who first reported about this, to protect the identity of the defendant. This is, mm -hmm. in theory, super not allowed because most or at least many courtrooms in the country ban the use of mobile phones and the internet, but they're relying in this particular court on hearing accessibility standards. Oh. So they'll have an, so that he or she, the defendant will have an ear, an AirPod okay. in their ear. So, and say that it's an accessibility thing. And then Browder said, do not pay is collaborating on another, uh, with another parking ticket defendant in a zoom based trial. Mm. And they're deciding whether they're going to use an AI generated teleprompter or even synthetic voice. The second option, though, Mr. Browder said is highly illegal. Okay. Currently. So, and then now he's out here trolling the world saying, do not pay. We'll offer any lawyer or person a million dollars with an upcoming case in front of the United States Supreme Court mm. to wear AirPods and let our robot lawyer argue the case by repeating exactly what it says. Okay. This is fascinating mm -hmm. um, and makes total sense. If there is an optimal script for getting out of a parking ticket. Mm -hmm. Perfect thing for use it. generative AI to do. And just like people use templates for investing in companies or employment agreements or any kind of thing. So what this is, is a real time template, a real time script. This to me seems like a total valid use of AI. Now, I do think they're doing this to push the envelope and it's like a press getting story, right? Yeah, it's a stunt. I mean, the Supreme Court thing is just a stunt. It's a like, it's stunty, of course. It's so yes. much of a stunt that I fear that it risks undermining your very good point and yeah. very good point that other advocates have made, which is that this is actually the kind of technology that can make the law and actual justice more accessible to people who can't afford lawyers. Right. So if you had a case, like a small claims court case, and you said, hey, I feel like I don't know. I, I got a predatory loan from one of these like predatory uh, mortgage brokers, right? And it scanned all your documents. It scanned every court transcript of a predatory loan. It looked for the similarities. And it said these of these 1700 cases that were won out of 5000, the 1700 wins use these three defenses most often the judges cited these as the reasons the jury cited these. That's what people are. That's what attorneys are doing. Anyway, rich people's yes. attorneys, they throw 100 attorneys at the problem. They say, how do we get OJ off? Okay, we have to put some doubt that this is the, you know, uh, case law. And if there's some doubt, if it doesn't, the thing doesn't fit, you must acquit whatever the doubt is, we can 
plant with just one person, we, you know, like those strategies are only available, like you're saying to the rich. Yeah. It, AI could determine. This is really like actually fascinating. I know. AI could determine. That's kind of why I'm annoyed about the stunt because although the stunt could push the envelope and get them correct. to change these kind of BS laws, like you should 100% be able to use this as a research tool. Like all a lawyer, yes. I'm going to get in trouble because it's not all a lawyer is. But if you look at the bulk of what happens in law school, and actually yes. lawyers have been talking about this for decades, that AI is going to come and like mm -hmm. paralegals, what they do is research. And then turn that research, synthesize yeah. the research and turn it into some kind of an opinion. It's the best if, of what they do. Exactly. But if it's, an AI can laudable. do that for people who can't afford it, well, and then you get somebody like fancy to perform it in court, right? Like, yeah. Lawyers will come down to talent at some point. It'll be all the actions, like, right? Like, computer AI is going to write end. the perfect Quentin Tarantino script. And then it's just a matter of who's going <laughs> to, you know, Bruce Willis or whoever's AI. Uh, but, you know. It's a big deal. I actually know it's some a very big deal because what this also will do, you know what the analogy here in Mali is? It's a very interesting conversation that we stumbled into here. Do you remember the Justice Project? Barry Sheck, I think, did it. Um, when DNA came out, mm -hmm. they went back and they said, okay, find everybody who was convicted who claims they didn't do it. Yeah. Which obviously everybody claims they didn't do it. But that it was like people had concerns that felt yep. like this person got railroaded and there is some dna available to be tested yeah so when they found those two vectors hey the person claims innocence oh it's called the innocence project uh barry shack really like cool project then they paid for the dna testing in my understanding and then they would re and then it was like yeah there's blood on the knife there's you know whatever other bodily fluids are getting graphic here it's not this person's yeah this person is innocent yeah. Oh, and by the way, now we have 23andMe, and we know it's this person who's their relative, because nine times out of 10, it's a relative, right? Or whatever. Mm. The, I don't listen to all this crime dramas, but I think that's kind of the theme is, uh, you know, it's, it's the, shockingly, it's the ex-husband who right. killed. Huh? Oh my God, the, it was the ex-boyfriend? Really? <laughs> there's a, I'm so shocked. There's like a Spoiler family guy alert. about that where he uses his Nielsen household power to rewrite all of tv and it's like can you just give me the answer up front and it's like oh it was the ex-girlfriend who did it yeah it was perfect Go -go you know like law and like order. literally take all of law and order episodes yeah. put them through ai <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> I, was I think this could be like you could go through every court case that happened molly yeah and if you let's say you knew there was an injustice that happened frequently uh something to do with eyewitness testimony uh you could say hey anybody who's convicted based on eyewitness testimony let's go check all those transcripts and look for trends yep. and you you might exonerate a lot of innocent people the innocence project has exonerated 194 clients incredible yeah i mean i think this could upend this could a hundred percent upend you know i'm actually i'd sort of forgotten about this because we haven't had a meeting but i'm an advisor to this newly formed justice tech mm. association which is specifically yeah. for using tech to increase accessibility to access to the to justice we yeah. should maybe we should have mon and talk about this ai trend because it is really interesting like this is how yeah. you replace a lot of lawyers but also how you do make the law a lot more accessible like sort of separate from these stunts although you know stunts do get attention they have their value we're talking about it right now we're talking so, about it right now thank you josh so, for <laughs> making us talk about it well here's, played here's, sir well the 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 accessibility of a law library the accessibility of the online 
there's two online services, Westlaw, and there's another one. These two legal services that let you look up case laws are very expensive. These people would scan all the documents in. I remember when I was in the 90s in IT, they would send all these, you know, court cases, the physical documents to like India to be transcribed, you know, by two people, they would look for mistakes, and they would put it all into a database. And then lawyers would pay $1,000 a month for Westlaw and these other online services, giving access to those databases, giving access to the law library in a prison to, you know, people who needed to do their own research was like a big unlock. Well, giving AI to a prisoner uh, who feels they were unjustly, or in fact, were unjustly convicted of something, giving them access to AI to study all the cases and to study their case and say, hey, why, you know, there might be a trend that the your public defender like if I'm a small appeals firm, mm. this just became my strategy for getting clients. Sure. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, it's going to be transformative. And I think it would bend towards justice. Now, you could have it bend the other way, which is people find loopholes of how to get guilty people off. But we, it, it, you know, that's they already part are, of fair though. game. <laughs> well, only rich people. I don't mean to be flip, but like. <laughs> We're using a lot of loopholes. To, I mean, AI could also close those some of those loopholes. Well, know? that's that's the thing. So if you right. if, if it does find just like DNA exonerated some people, and then maybe uh, exo- maybe some people got exonerated, you know, that, who were in fact guilty or something. You know, could be could be the wrong DNA was on the side, and it's another excuse for it being there or whatever. Overall, uh, examining something as important as the legal system is worthy of technology's uh, attention and so absolutely it starts with a speeding ticket ends with a you know um railroaded manslaughter conviction or something or a murder conviction yeah yeah ai the story of 2023 and beyond no question no question also judges are flawed too right because they're humans of course they are they're human they're bribed they're biased they're this and that you know I don't I mean, even you don't know if judges like, know their own bias. You know, that's the other thing is like bias that people are unaware of. Right. Sometimes they're very aware. And yeah, it's, it's intentional. Like, you know, oh, you call people racial slurs your entire career on the bench and you're still there and you're still just like your record speaks for itself or what. I mean, what you could do is analyze records. Yes. Like you would analyze the conviction records of judges, right? Because like there still will have to be judgment. Sentencing. Sentencing guidelines have in some cases, you know, like third strike sentencing guidelines have proven to be very unfair because arrests themselves can be based in so much bias, for example. So the last thing you want to do is be like a computer will decide this based on these strictures and that will be the end of the story and there will be no nuance. Like you'll still have to have humans, Hmm. but to, to have a dispassionate analysis that can reveal bias. Yes, let's go. Speaking of chat GPT. Since we're on a roll, Molly, let's keep rolling here. All right. I showed you on yesterday's show and I saw on our TikTok account, uh, which I think is TWI Startups. Uh, search for This Week in Startups on TikTok. Um, mm-hmm. I saw that the TikTok of my demo of the chat GPT app, which I'm in the test flight of, uh, started trending yesterday. And you made a really good point, which was, you know, I was like, hey, tell me the best restaurants in Yauntville. That's like an area next to Napa where all the fancy restaurants are, French Laundry, mm-hmm. yada, yada. Then I said, hey, tell me which ones have the best duck, because if you're going to really test a chef, duck's a pretty good way to do it. I had an incredible piece of confit, uh, the confit when I was in Yonville. The, uh, Bouchon. Oh, man. Bouchon is the best. Oh, like I just was like, you know what? I, I want to have a birthday party and just rent out Bouchon. Right. Oh, the duck Definitely confit. do that. Très mm-hmm. magnifique. 
putting that aside, yeah, you said, well, then Google could then do that thing where they call on the phone mm-hmm. and get you a reservation, which Google has now. Google Voice will, if they don't have a reservation system, call me like, hey, I'm calling on behalf of Molly Wood. Can we have a reservation tonight? And they have the conversation. That's kind of what this Bill Broder, uh, I'm sorry, Josh Broder, uh, do not pay thing is doing. Yeah. Exactly what you mentioned there, which is, well, once the AI does the analysis, well, AI could have the conversation. AI could navigate what the outcome is going to be, which means there is a very professional use case for chat GPT and other services. Again, I think chat GPT is probably as good, but probably not better than whatever Google or Facebook have right now that they haven't released and Google and Facebook mm-hmm. need to release those they do they get 10% 20% pop in their stock. Open AI uh, quietly put out a form that we found on the discord there and I filled it out. They are asking people, how much would you pay mm. for a professional version of chat GPT? And I put in, uh, I would pay and, and they, they did a very interesting pricing survey. They said, what would be too little that you would think the price was too cheap? And I put 20 bucks. They said, what would be like too much? I put 5000. They said, what do you think would be like, make you feel like it's a good value? I put 50. And then they said, when will you start like, considering it was like too expensive. So it's like this classic pricing survey concept yeah. for $500. And I filled it out. Hopefully I get into chat GPT professional, but I think yeah. they've started a wait list based on a Google form. Um, and the idea would be you wouldn't be throttled. Maybe it would do some of the things it doesn't do currently that you have to say like, Oh, write a play in order to mm-hmm. get it. So maybe some of those things, maybe it could have multiplayer mode. This is what I'm thinking. And you would have no limits. So they could uncap it. But imagine multiplayer mode. Where like the producers of this week in startups are all in a chat GPT instance. And we're saying, somebody asked a question, what are Slack's historical quarterly revenues? And it puts that there. And then it says, hey, can you average that? And it averages it. Right, right now we ask a person there, but we could have a chat window open right now. And put chat. Imagine if chat GPT was built into Slack. And <laughs> you could just do slash chat GPT. What were <gasps> Slack's quarterly earnings? And it just gave it to you. Oh, my God. Oh, my what would God. That be worth professionally. Each query like would be right like, if you, just paid, if you just paid 25 cents a query, yeah. like you would need half the number of people at your company or the company, people at your company would be 50% more productive, mm-hmm. right? So this is going to have a dramatic I mean, impact in the enterprise. And when enterprise you were talking version, about, and I do not, I'm not trying to uh, dismiss the abil- capabilities, but when you were talking about like, oh, well, I'm just going to hire people in the Philippines to do that job sure. that you want too much money for in the US. Sure. All of a sudden, instead of all of that, you hire a computer like that. Future is the future that everybody talks about when it comes to yep. AI that is finally he like I can't believe how we know that these things evolve slowly at first and then all mm. at once, but I can't believe how all at once it is right now. Everything all at it's once. It's like everything all at once. Or returning to my hot take from yesterday, it's all a house of cards. Mm. It's one or the other. Either this chat GPT thing is total smoke and vapor. I just want to uh, end with my daughter's my my 13 year old daughter was really emotional last night because she saw me cry and she was like are you crying and i was like i'm not crying but i got beclemmed last night because one of my uh favorite films from my childhood was indiana jones and the temple of doom this is like we're gonna go a little random here okay okay now temple of doom you've seen it's Mm -hmm. a very dark film Mm -hmm. 
And it turns out Spielberg and Lucas, I think they were both going through divorces or whatever. And people were like, you know, that film dude was pretty dark. And they've kind of come back and said, you know what, we were going through a dark period of our life. And we went kind of dark on the Indiana Jones stuff. If you remember, you know, like there's children, children as slaves being whipped, hearts being ripped out of people's chests. It is That's intense. Mm -hmm. And it was like a little shocking for people. Um, and we had like a very interesting discussion about Kay, uh Hugh Kwan. In short round, because my daughter Soren said, is he, is that like a little bit of a racist trope when he was in Indiana Jones? Mm -hmm. uh, because he talked with a little bit of a broken English thing. And I said, you know, that's interesting. Like this generation sees it as problematic. I said, our generation. And I asked my wife, I was like, she's Asian, uh, she's Korean. I said, I saw it as like, whoa, there's a Chinese character, a young Chinese character in a significant role. He's the third lead in the film, essentially. It's like, yeah, Kay Capshaw. Harrison Ford, obviously, and then K. Hugh Kwan. Um, and he won a Golden Globe last night. And so my producers will pull this up and it will end with the speech. He was in everything all at once. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Okay. Now, I, yeah. I enjoyed that film. It wasn't like maybe like top 20 for me, but not in my top 10. Uh, but for a lot of people, it's top 10. Uh, but when I saw him in the film, my heart was filled with joy. Because I just thought, I always loved this. He was also in the Goonies, I believe. He was. But Hollywood forgot guy. about him. Yeah. And he gives this speech at the Golden Globes last night. And there is not a dry eye in the Golden Globes. And I had just had the conversation with my family about representation in films and why it's important and how this was like a moment of representation. And we just had this like very nuanced discussion about his, you know, English, etc. as a second language. And was that like, you know, when people make fun of Asian people and speak or any foreigner speaking broken English, it could be mm -hmm, an Italian mm -hmm. person or whatever, just or, or me speaking Italian or poorly, you know, in White Lotus or something. Uh, anyway, he wins. And he gives the speech of a lifetime. And mm -hmm. I play it for my, 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 my entire family. And I didn't realize it, but two tears just came down. I was so happy for him. And he just says, like, I always, you know, was taught to remember who, you know, to, to, to be thankful in my life. And I just want to say I'm so thankful to Steven Spielberg for giving me a chance. But then I thought, for the last 30 years of my life, I thought I will never achieve what I achieved in my childhood. My entire life will be downhill from here. Wow. And then these, um, and this video is trending all over TikTok. It's trending all over Twitter. It was like going, he was almost, I think, number one last night. It was a first or second trend. Uh, and I didn't even know his name. I'll be totally honest. I just knew him a short round. Because uh, I always, when I started Dan Jones, I thought, when I started Dan Jones, when I was whatever, eight, nine, ten years old, I would love to be short round. I would love to be Indiana Jones sidekick, right? Yeah. That yeah. to me was like a dream. I think that's why Spielberg did it. He was like, wouldn't it be cool? If Indiana f Jones had like a 10 year old like or 12 year old yeah. as his sidekick who would drive totally. him and they'd let short rounds, the joke of short round is he's short because he's a kid and he drives the getaway car for Indiana Jones in Hong Kong during this like really tense scene, but he's so short, he ties blocks to his shoes to make his shoe reach yep. the gas pedal, but he can drive a getaway car. Just brilliant on Steven Spielberg's part. 
and so he he gave this speech and then uh, he says and these two filmmakers these two or three filmmakers remembered me from 30 years ago and said they would give me another shot and they gave him the shot and he wins the golden globe oh my god boom mm. and they say it's his first nomination and everybody in the audience is going it's his first nomination this guy's been mia for 30 years yeah like well, yeah exactly it's his first role yeah basically it's his first adult role now i'm sure As an he adult. Tried, and he basically then shouts out his wife for believing him for these 30 years. But uh, you may remember, you know, in 2022, he ran into Harrison Ford and he, he gives him a hug at some photo shoot. And that had trended. And I, I don't even know if I brought it up on the show. God, that is um, too cute now. But uh, I just thought it would be good to end. I hope this doesn't get us a strike. Uh, it's like a redemption story. I love it. Well, we'll just we'll just we'll add I'm gonna like end on this video just up. because I thought it was so beautiful. When I started my career as a child actor in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I felt, I felt so very lucky to have been chosen. As I grew older, I started to wonder if that was it, if, if that was just luck. For so many years, I was afraid that I had nothing more to offer, uh, that no matter what I did, I would... I would never surpass what I achieved as a kid. Thankfully, more than 30 years later, two guys thought of me. Oh. They remembered that kid. You monster. And they gave me an opportunity to try again. Oh, got me again. God damn it. Molly, got me again. I, I am so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it's you. the greatest video of the year. I'm a little fragile this week. Like, must you? That is amazing. I'm sorry, Molly. I just, I mean, literally got me again. I am so happy for you, K Hugh Kwan. Congratulations. 30 years later. Yeah. You got a little, you gave yourself a little tissue on the oh, lip there. Sorry about that. We're falling yeah, that's apart. We're like a mess. Here. That was very wholesome. Oh, that's incredible. And I just said last night, like, exactly your response. Like, this is what we need right now. More of this in the world, more yeah. joy and people getting another shot and crushing it. Give this guy like 10 more roles. And then I saw trending. Somebody said, what if they did a spin out of short round as a Disney Aww. series? They should totally do that. And he's just totally a little action Jackson. Do incredible. He is inspired by Indiana Jones. And he goes on his own adventures as an He's adult. He's an adventure hunter. And let do him it. go do some adventure, like a little, it's like a young, remember young Indiana Jones? There was a series, people don't remember this. Oh, yeah. That, uh, I think it was River Phoenix, uh, rest in peace, you know, great actor, but I think he played young Indiana Jones. Um, and they've wow. been talking about who might play Indiana Jones, uh, you know, in the future. I say nobody That's ever. Also kind of delightful because it's a wonder, yeah, also don't know. Don't ever don't try. Do that. No, mm -hmm. don't do that, Hollywood. But do no. the short round spinoff. I love that. Yeah. How great is that? That's amazing. Sorry, I got your mom. It got me too. Oh. It got me twice. It got There's me twice. Oh. All right. Well, there it is, folks. There's your wholesome there you go, end of the show. Didn't uh, see that coming. Didn't see that coming. But I, I just thought, you know, people listen it. to the show. It's great. That they, you know, people like to have a little. When we go off on our little tangents. I yeah. think it was like a tangent worth your attention. 
given how everything's horrible all at once. <laughs> and this is not. <laughs> That's wonderful. All right, all right everybody. Thank you. We'll see you we'll be tomorrow. Back with more Bye-bye. pop culture tomorrow too with live. Okay.